when we're in relationship with the earth as ecosexuals, as lovers, married to the earth, it can just be a romantic. You don't have to be ecosexual. You can be just a romantic partner, ecosensual partner. When you're in that relationship, then you just start to care more. And just like when you're in a marriage, you learn how to be a better partner. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. Before we get to today's episode, I would love to let you know about our upcoming retreat. We are hosting an in-person immersion for folks with yonis to come together to heal, deepen, and celebrate our connection to the erotic. We will be creating a ritualized container supported by sacred plants and sacred sound. Live music will be provided by Franco-American multi-instrumentalist Petite Celine, and the invitation is to really work with the vibrations of this sound in your body in this embodied sense as we explore and revel in how the erotic lives inside of us. We will be gathered in upstate New York on 23 acres of expansive wilderness, and space is extremely limited. We are very much curating this to support and best serve the participants. So if you are in the area, please join us. Visit www.strippersandsages.com slash immersions. Do sign up for our mailing list as we will be doing more of these in the coming months throughout the country and throughout the world. And in honor of today's episode on ecosexuality, we are doing a fundraising campaign to support the legal defense fund of the water protectors who've been protesting line three. Many of these protectors are indigenous women who've been putting themselves on the front lines to stop a proposed pipeline expansion that would transport nearly a million barrels of tar sands per day through the untouched wetlands and treaty territory of the Anishinaabe people. The pipeline would run through the Mississippi River headwaters to the shores of Lake Superior, risking extreme environmental damage and contributing more to climate change than Minnesota's entire economy. So please join us in being devoted stewards, lovers, and protectors of the earth by donating to this fund. We will link to it in our show notes and on our website. Today, I'm speaking with Annie Sprinkle and Beth Stevens, who have been life partners and multimedia collaborators for the last 20 years. They are the authors of the Ecosex Manifesto and producers of the award-winning films Goodbye Golly Mountain and Water Makes Us Wet, a documentary feature that premiered at Documentary 14 and screened at MoMA. This year, they received a Guggenheim Fellowship for filmmaking. Sprinkle, the old whore, is a former sex worker with a PhD in human sexuality, and Stevens, the hillbilly, holds a PhD in performance studies and is the founding director of Earth Lab at the University of California, Santa Cruz. They have a new book out called Assuming the Ecosexual Position, which describes how the two came together as lovers and collaborators, how they took a stand against homophobia and xenophobia, and how this union led to the miraculous conception of the Love Art Laboratory. Annie and Beth, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. And I would love to start by just hearing your origin story, how you came together to be partners and collaborators and how you each individually came into this work as ecosexuals. Well, thanks for having us on your podcast. We're really excited to be here. And this is Beth, the old hillbilly. And can you hear our dog eating his lunch right now? <laughs> I, I don't hear Butch, but we will know that if we do hear him, he is part of this trio. Well, he's totally part of this trio. He's our collaborator. That's right. But anyhow, I was going to school at Rutgers University. I was getting an MFA there. And uh, I had to do a graduate thesis show. And I thought, I'd been, I've, I grew up in West Virginia. And I was just transfixed with these uh, biker babe calendar girls that were in my father's machine shop. And I wanted to make a graduate thesis piece along those lines using the lesbian gaze instead of the sort of male mechanic gaze, right, to uh, appreciate these beautiful booksome women with tools. So Annie was really hot at this time. I mean, she's always been hot. She always will be hot. But she was very hot around 1992 in her career, among other things. And uh, so I called her up and asked her if she would actually pose for me for my graduate thesis show. Out of the blue, well, actually, I had curated some tip prints of hers into a previous exhibition, but which emboldened me to call her up. And she said, yes. So this was in 1992 and we did this photo shoot, which your viewers can't see it, but there's a picture of us behind 
behind us right now of Annie and I posing on a motorcycle, on my motorcycle, which was a Harley, of course. And uh, we did this photo shoot, and that probably got me the professorship at UC Santa Cruz, or at least it helped. Nobody could believe that this lesbian in this moment of sort of, you know, lesbian liberation would make work about, you know, tool girls and calendars, right? So anyhow, um, that's how I really got familiar with working with Annie. And that was 10 years before we got together as lovers. Amazing. And Annie, when, where, what, what, where were you in your career at this point? Hot in all the ways. Hot. Uh, hot. Um, I was hot. <laughs> I was She's still hot. I was totally hot. Working in uh, massage parlors for 22 years in Manhattan. Um, but I longed to be more part of the art world. So I was interested when Beth called me and doing this shoot with this artist. I had posed for a lot of artists, so it's kind of dopey to weekend for one. And um, I was invited to pose for Maplethorpe, but I turned him down. <laughs> I regret that one. Yeah. But I was busy out of test. I went to School of Visual Arts at the time we did that shoot. Uh, and I was majoring in photography, <clears throat> fine art. So... I always had the desire to do art, but I still was interested in sex. And I wasn't quite a lesbian. I had boyfriends at the time. Uh, but, of course, AIDS wiped out a lot of uh, my community uh, by the time I met Beth. So my heart was open, and I was just beginning to be interested in doing stuff with women, even though I'd done porn with women. Uh, but yeah, so I said yes, and we stayed in touch. And then years and years later, uh, I was single, she was single. I was more interested in a relationship with a woman. And we had our first date and our first kiss and our first sex. And it was three days. <laughs> and uh, I had a, a therapy appointment on the second day, and she came with me to my therapist. So we had couples therapy on our first date. <laughs> That's awesome. That is a good remedy, I think. A good uh, way to set yourself up for success early on. Couples therapy on the first date. And Annie, just quickly, how did you get into pornography and that work prior? Uh, selling popcorn in a mo porno movie theater when I was 18. Uh, and I was also very interested in sex and filmmaking. And I met Gerard Damiano when the film Deep Throat went to trial at and I was a witness because I had sold the popcorn. And, but I became his mistress and for, um, we became lifelong friends. And he was a charming Italian man. And I started out behind the scenes in New York uh, working on porn films and then jumped on camera. Eventually, I thought that would blow my art career. Or my, I, I wanted to be an art teacher, and I thought, well, that's that, but i got to do this thing. I followed my not muse and my clit. <laughs> the rest is her story. <laughs> it's been, uh, I had a good experience in the sex industry for a long time. I had choices, and I was privileged, and I knew how to say no to things I didn't want to do, and I wasn't a drug addict or alcoholic, so... It fit my needs. I was uh, had an artist impulse, and I really loved making films, and I loved having sex. So it was perfect. And you still get to do both of those things, maybe just not anymore at the same time. Well, actually, you are showcasing your Earth sex. So yeah, no, we we consider our film "Water Makes Us Wet" a kind of conceptual art porn. Yeah. I'm probably going to Porn Film Festival to show it um, in October. Oh, really? Yeah. We're, we're ecosexual, and ecosex is making love to the earth. Uh, so it's sex outside the box. It's an expanded idea of what, you know, sexual pleasure is. And, and you can have sex all the time when you're an ecosexual. In fact, our biome clouds right now are having an orgy. And uh, it's perfect for radio because you can't really see it, mm -hmm. but it's happening. It is happening. So expand upon the concept, um, like both the, the practical exploration of eco-sexuality and then some more of the theoretical and how, how you landed on that as a term. 
Well, we had a wedding to the earth in 2008. And this was part of a series of weddings that we were doing, annual weddings. Uh, sometimes there were two or three during a year. But we had been married. We married each other as part of a protest against uh, the exclusion of same-sex couples from the privileges of weddings. And we did that for a few years. And then we married the earth. And we took vows to love, honor, and cherish the earth until death brings us closer together. And the next morning we woke up and we were like, oh my God, what does this make us? And the closest word that we could you know, conjure was this word ecosexuality. We're ecosexuals now. And then that just, we didn't know what that really was. We didn't coin the term. It was floating around a little tiny yeah. bit. Yeah. But we had to figure out what that was. And that's really how we've moved, to, made, you know, created a movement, this ecosexual mm -hmm. movement. So we didn't invent the term, but we did have made a movement through, through the manifesto that you mentioned, through these weddings that we've held, and then the films, and we do workshops, walking tours, we do all kinds of things. Uh, around ecosexuality, and now we have a book, Assuming the Ecosexual Position. I mean, this has really been something that's grown. But practically, ecosexuality has to do with being conscious of being in the world and all the sensual pleasures that that brings, can bring one, if you're open to it. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, when you're breathing air, we say we're having intercourse with the air that we breathe. Or you can massage the earth with your feet as you're walking you know, down the street or walking in a field, right? That's a, that's a form of massage when you're, you know, touching your lover, the earth. And uh, do you want to say you can uh, masturbate, you know, make love with the water, with the hot tub jet, which a lot of people take pleasure with water, but we like to give water pleasure and tell the water we love it. So it's a kind of uh, we, we expanded on the idea and the definition of what ecosex could be to include, like it's an activist strategy, it's a um, conceptual it, art project, it's an, an identity, sexual identity that just means you imagine the earth as a lover. It's a theoretical structure to look at the world, mm -hmm. you know, through and, and to analyze and in critical ways. We kind of explore the area between ecology and sexology. So we're sex ecologists. We actually made that word up. In our new book, Assuming the Ecosexual Position, subtitle The Earth as Lover, we have a whole lexicon glossary. And we, we've just kind of, as an artist, just invented all kinds of words and, and ideas. And It's a really, really fun practice. If you can wrap your mind around it and just let go. <laughs> but really, basically, it's, it's, it's having sensual pleasure. To, sensual sexual pleasure. Yeah. It's sensual is sexual, sexual, right? Yeah. If you smell the, you know, stop and smell the roses, you know, do you throw yourself into it and say, oh, there's the reproductive parts of the rose I'm sniffing the or, genitalia of yeah the rose. and how gorgeous is this rose and I have orgasmic pleasure color orgasms um it's, so it's really a mindfulness practice as well mm -hmm. and and saying yes to more pleasure and sexy fun uh we're all more familiar uh, you know with the human condition and suffering and pain and uh but we can also um, a lot of people can't handle more pleasure and sexy fun, but we're like, bring it on. Beth will run naked through a field of nettles, for example. That's, so ecosex has an edge. It can be very kinky. And the earth is a crow mistress and there's no safe word. So it's not this fluffy thing. It could be, you know, a volcano, an earthquake. Um, but it, basically it's eroticizing everything. Mm -hmm. Well, and we live in such a sex negative culture that doing that, you know, opens a door for people to really, you know, put us down or dismiss us or, uh, you know, try to censor us in ways that, you know, we kind of play with those as artists always play with adversity. Mm. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're always trying to expand uh, the field of what ecosexuality could be. But part of what we look at, too, is that humans are not better or above nature. 
I mean, we're really involved in trying to break down binaries that cause a lot of damage because these binaries always make one thing better than the other. And you can look at binaries in race politics and, you know, where white supremacy is the highest, you know, binary position of any of the positions or human is higher than animal or, you know, culture is higher than nature. And what that does is that allows human beings to be dismissive of, or even worse, just kill, you know, the things that we think we're better than because they're, you know, not worth flourishing. Absolutely. I mean, I also love going back to then thinking about marriage and marrying the earth and there being this vow to love and respect and care for. And I think that that, uh, you know, a little conceptual question I had when I was reading about and thinking about your work was, well, then how does the earth consent? Like, how does the earth consent to a marriage? And I'm curious on your thoughts on that. But I will just say first that um, I appreciate what I didn't think about until you've said it now is this idea of the caring for and the vowing in terms of how you are going to engage as a partner with the earth and that equalizing, right? Because in a relationship or a union, there's a partnership that's non-exploitative and that's the major reframing that we need. So how do you think about consent and the earth's uh, participation in this union? I think that also, I think the consent question is actually really important. It is. Because I, I do think that the earth can communicate what it is feeling. And it I believe it's beginning to now. And it's not, you know, the earth speaks in terms that are much larger than language, mm-hmm. right? So um, I think that probably trees know who their friends are and who their enemies are mm-hmm. because they're finding out that trees do respond to insects, you know, that are like bark beetles that are causing damage to an individual tree. And it will send messages to other trees to try to create chemicals that will keep the bark beetle at bay. So, you know, like human beings are big bark beetles, right? And the trees are going to be communing that, communicating that. I really believe they do communicate that. And that sometimes we maybe have a language uh, or a listening problem with trees. But the earth is now at a point with climate change where it's beginning to communicate, not on an individual basis, but on these huge geographic uh, scales, right? That, that it's not happy with, with the way things are going. And, uh, you know, human beings are, are even the most, even the most blind <laughs> to environmental issues are beginning to wake up because a lot of humans are dying because the earth is angry. But there have been all kinds of scientific tests and, you know, practical tests, um, like taking down dams or whatever, where giving the earth or certain nature entities, uh, life forms, love does have an effect. And I'd like to think, and I might be wrong, that, you know, a tree responds to love and appreciates love. Uh, So, uh, and I think eroticism is connected, love is a flavor of eroticism, or eroticism is a flavor of love. Actually, I call it making love for nothing. I also have a really good, two good examples. We have two trees that we've been living with for a long time, and both of them have broken into our septic systems and caused thousands and thousands of dollars worth of damage. And I did not cut down either tree. I fixed the septic systems. Okay, so we have these really happy trees that are probably after we're dead, they'll break into the septic system again. And they know that we didn't cut them down because they caused us all this. I mean, money doesn't matter to them. So, right. So anyhow, I mean, I think that trees are, you know, they like living with humans too, I think. And I I think they understand when humans love them and we really love our trees. But Mm -hmm. we could be wrong. We admit we might be, you know, hugging a tree and it doesn't like it. But usually it'll have poison ivy around it or spiders on it or something. But we also live near (laughs) trees that drop their branches through car windows and things like that. I think trees have a little agency. Yeah, our red (laughs) trees are candy. 
Well, I'm sure I'm sure they like it better than being cut down or turned into timber. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about, of course, this idea of reciprocity with the earth and the the animacy and agency of of plants is, of course, very um, central to indigenous ideologies. And there's some synergy there with Dr. Kim Talbert, who I know your colleagues with and who was on this show thinking about the non-human world as part of our, our network of kin. Can you talk about how your own work credits or engages with indigenous Indigenous traditions and activists, as I know you've been in collaboration with some? Well, Kim told us that these are conversations that we need to have that need to be very careful conversations because we do not want to appropriate Indigenous cosmologies and ways of, of being in relation with kin, with other kinds of kin, non human kin. Mm-hmm. And I think that we come from different traditions. For instance, I said I grew up in West Virginia, where I had very close ties to the earth growing up, and they weren't appropriative ties. They just were a part of the landscape of myself growing up and working with animals. I worked a lot with animals, horses, cattle, pigs, chickens, fish, hunters, right, uh, who hunted animals. And so these were things that I learned without the sort of filter of capitalism over them. Well, the capitalism was there, but there wasn't a sort of judgmental uh, kind of Christian capitalism that that teaches us that animals are less than. And mm-hmm. that came later in my life. So as a child, I was in wonder of the trees and the streams and the fish and the earthworms. And I knew what the cycles were uh, of all of these animals and what their sexual mm-hmm. habits were and these things were just knowledge that one had. They weren't judged. And so I think that that sometimes with uh, people, white people, or people who don't live close to nature, you know, nature, that problematic word, that there's a real disconnect. But when you're connected to these systems and these ways of being, you're, you're, your welfare depends upon the welfare of these other beings. You're connected. You are in kinship. And people who have experienced that just have a completely different relationship and not necessarily positive or negative. I mean, I've seen some farmers who really mistreat their animals, but most took very good care of their animals because they knew that everybody's welfare depended upon it and had feelings for their animals, even though they knew these animals at some point might go to slaughter. So, um, I mean, I feel like before I was, you know, before I was taught better, right? that I had a very direct relationship with, with animals and they were my friends and they were my relatives and they, they taught me so much and really gave me a lot of love when, you know, my own mother died as a kid, right? I mean, I had animals that I would <laughs> seek comfort from and knowledge mm-hmm. and friendship. And I, I didn't have these filters that, you know, I, I as a human, uh, you know, that I was better than these animals or that they were beneath me in any way because I was, my imagination was allowed to, to, you know, thrive mm-hmm. in relationship with these other things. So that's, that's where I come from this. I mean, I, I was just a great animal lover mm-hmm. and I still am, you know, <laughs> look at my animal here. <laughs> For me, uh, I have to say that I had many Native American, Native American teachers along the way and have been very heavily influenced but in eco-sex movement and work that we do we try to come up with our own terms and our own flavor there's certain universal principles that we all share Mm -hmm. universal human experiences I I had a pool growing up as a kid and I was totally an aquaphiliac and spent time in Yosemite so I had those the early experiences, which are we write about in our book, mm-hmm. um, our ecosex coming out stories. And so, but I'm enormously grateful to my teachers, and that's the best I can do. And I try to, yeah, have careful think before, you know, I, uh, during the AIDS crisis, uh, we coped by using a lot of you know having full moon ceremonies sweat lodges drumming Mm -hmm. native songs and uh that today that's an issue but in in the mid 80s we just didn't think about it so we thought you know that uh we could just use those 
kind of traditions. Uh, so how did you learn about them at that time? Like, were they from, were they given, was it from a teacher that you were learning or they were? There was a native American guy that did a full moon ceremony and I would go okay. every month. There was white feather at the wise woman center who I did many summer workshops where things like that. Uh, so I owe them a huge debt of gratitude. So I think it's a mix, but I also lived in Central America and Panama and visited the San Blas Indians and, and learned about different traditions around the world, studied Tantra, Tantric sex, Taoist sex. And yes, we were appropriating it. My old video, Sluts and Goddesses, my film, uh, appropriated up the wazoo. I don't even want to show it anymore. And today, mm. more we were, we have more awareness as white privileged people that we uh, took from these traditions to too freely. So without acknowledging them enough, mm. being grateful enough. So we do the best we can and take and give and support as able. Yeah, well, learning. I mean, I think it's really important yeah. to learn from other cultures and you know you don't know until you know and that's a you know that can be an artifact of privilege but it can also just be an artifact of ignorance yeah definitely I mean it's about it's about a healthy integration right now because so many of these practices and ideologies are what we as what we need to start looking towards and of course there's a lot of nuance and how to do that respectfully and and stay in conversation I think remains central to that project um so your book, your book, it's not just about pushing, but obliterating these boundaries, circumscribing biology and ecology, creating eco-sexual art in your performance of an environmentalism that's feminist, queer, sensual, sexual, post-human, materialist, and steeped in humor. And humor, I see, is so fantastically present in all of your work. And I want to talk about your aesthetic a little later in this interview. But I'd love to hear about the importance of materialism within your branch of feminism and environmentalism? That's a Beth answer. Come on, old hillbilly, give it to us. <laughs> materialism. <laughs> you mean feminist materialism, I take it. <laughs> That's right, materials. Well, I mean, we, you know, that comes back to the question you asked before. Do things have agency? Do materials? Mm -hmm agency and I started out as a, a ceramicist mm. so um, I, I mean it's you know no wonder I'm an ecosexual now because I always loved getting dirty and I, I loved working with clay and you can't work with a material like clay unless you are sensitive to what it needs in order to make it do what you want right I mean it's like having a lover okay uh Sometimes I would make these beautiful forms, and if I pushed it too far, the form would collapse, or if I didn't push it enough, the form never formed, right? And I think the whole earth is like that. I mean, we're finding that the material world is full of life, it's full of agency, it's full of desire, and even if it's not a desire that we can understand or share, everything is here to live and to flourish. And so as, as, as we can support that and, and understand it to learn ourselves, you know, how to flourish better, right? I mean, we, we do live in kind of a death, a death cult. And I think that that's where, uh, you know, human beings section off. I mean, that's where exceptionalism, you know, becomes invented so that we're better than these other things. I mean, you know, Christianity is all about getting to heaven. I'm not going to speak about other religions. Having dominion over yeah, the earth. Yeah, having dominion over the earth. And I, materialism is a complete contradiction to that because you start to realize that you want to be with things. You want to become with things. And even though we know that we're all going to die or change or go away, it's okay because that's another form of becoming. And, it, 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 you know, it's not about, oh, I'm a better Christian than you, than you are, or I had more money than you did. Because really, we're all very similar, and we're all on the same pathway in, in, in so many ways. And if we could help each other move along that pathway in, a, in solidarity and in cahoots with each other, life would be so much more fun. 
and, and maybe even meaningful, and there'd be a lot less struggle. Because, of course, struggle is useful and resistance is useful, but actually going with the flow is way more productive in certain ways. I mean, productive is not really a good word. It's hard to talk about these things because our language is not even built. Right. Talk about things. So when you start talking about materialism and the agency of the non-human or the inanimate, you sound crazy to some people. Well, and it's it's like an evolved concept too, right? Because materialism was problematic at one point within feminism because it was the basis for creating the binaries that you're talking about, right? And limiting people within these roles. So it's it feels like we're kind of coming full circle now to an expanded idea of how materialism can actually be fluid and liberating within itself. So tell us about the miraculous conception of the Love Art Lab. You take that one, honey. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Beth and I got together and really fell madly in love. And we do butch femme pretty well down the line. We uh, get along super well. We like the same kind of art, the same kind of politics. So our story is a big love story. We're together 19 years. And our, our new book is really, uh, above all, a love story where the love just grows to ginormous proportions. And so the Love Art Lab came about because we had both done a lot of work about sex in our art careers, our solo careers. <clears throat> and when we fell in love, we thought, what is this thing called love? And it seemed like a taboo, you know, almost because we come from the sex community, but suddenly everybody was doing work about sex. Uh, so we decided to explore what is love and do art projects that generated love. So we did a piece called Cuddle, and we where we cuddled anyone that came into the gallery between us with, and our dog, <laughs> with our dog, Bob. We did a piece that called Extreme Kiss, where we kissed for three hours nonstop in a gallery naked without going further than the kiss. That's the hard part. <laughs> and uh, Linda Montana, a performance artist in upstate New York, who was a big mentor of mine and Beth knew her work, uh, does a seven-year project where each year she devotes to a different theme and color based on the chakra system or the glands. Uh, so she put out a call for other people to use her structures. So Beth and I loved those seven-year pieces. She'd done three by then. Uh, and we decided we would apply to use her structure. And she chose like 11 artists. And we started using the themes and colors of the chakras as part of our work. So we called that project the Love Art Laboratory. And there's a website called loveartlab.org that we would plug in documentation. And we were, we're very hard workers and we love doing art projects. So there's a lot of stuff on there. We have a new website called sprinklestevens.org. Uh, with some of the same materials, but so they could just see some of that there. But uh, we we decided at the end of the seven years, uh, love was just too complicated and too, uh, uh, yeah, there's too much to it. And we did. We, we did try to Wait a minute. Whoa, reclaim whoa, whoa. the hallmark. Well, I think we learned a lot. No, we learned a lot, and we did. We generated a lot of love. love No, no. I'm saying, as an art project, love is too broad a a concept in a way because there's so many aspects to it. And but it is kind of taboo in a funny way. Like Hallmark owns love, you know. People think of they roll their eyes. Oh, you do work about love. It's it's almost more transgressive than we work about sex in a funny way so we finished the seven-year project got lots of documentation and it led us into ecosex when we got to the heart chakra we married the earth and the rest uh evolved from there and we just kept going with it mm-hmm. and the earth lab how do some of those experiments uh how are they in conversation with the Love Art Lab or how do they stand on their own? What are some that you'd like to share about? 
Well, what happened with the Love Art Lab is that we did three weddings that were human-centered. And that was the red year, the orange year, and the yellow year. We married each other. We married our community. And then we got legally married in Canada in that yellow year as a theater piece that people had to pay for <laughs> to come to the wedding. So there were, you know, kind of things were happening. and But then we just got tired of human-centric problems. Mm. And we thought, wow, who really needs the protections and the privileges of the rights of marriage? And we thought, you know, the earth does because the earth is not doing well, the earth's doing fine, but it's suffering a lot. And so we that's when we married the earth. And then things started running in parallel. So we were still doing the project, the seven-year project, but we were kind of off-roading into this, this, you know, this realm of environmentalism, ecological stuff, uh, ecosexuality. And, and the Earth Lab came about then because we wanted to really have a base in the university, we wanted to have a center there and there had been a call out, you know, made for centers. And so I proposed the Earth Lab where students could come work with us. We could host symposiums, which we have hosted two fantastic symposiums. Well, we've done about five or six internationally. Right, six. right. But two where we actually use the resources of the university. And I teach at UC Santa Cruz, which is the most beautiful campus of probably any university in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it is just, you know, we have a Rachel Carson College on UC Santa Cruz. It's very environmentally uh, astute. This year, we're having our MFA in environmental art and social practice. We're having our first cohort. And I was instrumental in starting that uh, program. And it took many years to start it. But I'm so proud, you know, that we're going to be really teaching students and, and supporting students who are involved in environmental uh, and social justice or environmental justice projects. So, you know, the Earth Lab at the UC Santa Cruz is it's really a place where students, you know, it's a learning, it's a teaching institute mm -hmm. or center. It's not an institute, it's a center. But then also we're just right now starting an Earth Lab San Francisco too, mm -hmm. because we want to bring this work out of the university. And we do that with our art. But we want to kind of do it in a more formal way that maybe uh, will attract an even broader audience than, than the ecosexual work that we do. So uh, the Earth Lab stands for environmental art practice. No, no Earth <laughs> environmental art theory. Art research theory. Art research and theory and practice. But it's environmental no, art. No, it's not that art. E <laughs> e <laughs> happenings. <laughs> Well, but anyhow, Earth. Are you sure you started this, Hillbilly? <laughs> research theory and happenings. Yeah, I, I don't smell well. Anyhow, <laughs> so we're going to have this, this arm of the Earth Lab up in San Francisco, too. But we never call it Earth Lab SF, so it could be science fiction or strange fabulations or, you know, whatever you want SF to stand for. I like it. <laughs> a fluid, a fluid, fluid. Well, yeah. I'm... Go ahead. Our, our little niche is, uh, we, we like to say we're trying to make environmental art more sexy, fun, and diverse because there's a lot of people who don't feel like they can be comfortably be themselves in the mainstream environmental movement. So we're a little outside the box. We made a, an affinity group where the queers, the drag queens, the old whores, the young whores, the porn stars, the, uh, the hillbillies, hillbillies, Horse. And, yeah, the uh, punk rockers, where they, we can uh, be ourselves, be flamboyant, be outside the box, because a lot of people are scared of us. And, and sex positive community, we've gone to some pretty straight environmental activist camps and, you know, always feel like we have to be under wraps and are told, oh, don't bring up the eco-sex thing. It's going to freak people out. But on the other hand, a lot of people who are doing environmental work have really supported us yeah. as well. So we never know where our allies are or where our, um, you know, whatever the opposite of an ally is. In our uh, book, we write about all the critiques, and some of them come from queer people. Yeah, they, 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 you know, I've been accused of trying to dilute the GLBTQI plus two movement, 
with ecosexuality, <laughs> which I, I find like, wow, is the queer movement so weak, you know, well, uh, that we would even be able to dilute it in any way. I mean, I, I love diversity and I love, you know, more and more and more inclusion, as much inclusion, mm-hmm. you know, as, as can happen, but also as much diversity, because I just think it makes for a stronger system. And uh, more interesting and fun and fabulous. And yeah, the more the merrier, the more the merrier. People from all countries, people from all cultures, sexual identities. We welcome heterosexuals. (laughs) Even even the heterosexuals are welcome here. I mean, yeah. And I think, of course, it's a shared planet. And so bringing in people from all of the folds towards this, we we can get really lost in these identity politics when there's a much larger mission at stake. How, what, what, if you hone in on the critique, like how, how are you ostensibly diluting that space through ecosexuality or because the E is evidently taking attention away from the GLBTQI, you know, A, right? I mean, the, the E is threatening those other letters. And I, I just don't think that that's true. I think that together we're a lot stronger than we are apart. Yeah. And I think that history proves that. What are we, some of, go ahead, Annie. Oh, we like to say the earth to us. And we imagine it as genderqueer, as trans, as all genders beyond gender, we anthropomorphize to kind of be able to connect more with um, things we don't understand. Um, but but to us, the earth is definitely trans in our imaginations. I, I well, mean, a lot of eco-sex is imagination yeah. and fantasy. We took the step into the into making more material our ideas about the earth being trans in our film water makes us wet an ecosexual adventure and we were fortunate enough to have sandy stone uh be the be the audio voice of the earth and sandy is a fantastic artist she's a trans she's a trans pioneer she was one of the founders of, of trans studies and so that she be, she was like a perfect manifestation of the voice of the earth throughout that film. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about the film in the second. I'm just to close on on this chapter of the book. I'm curious what other critiques you've had to respond to, either that you address in the book or or throughout your career, because it is such difficult, rich, yeah, nuanced territory to be exploring. It's thick. It's crazy. It's against God's will. Uh, we have a whole list of them. It's too new age, it's too woo-woo, it's too hippie, it's too uh Well, a lot of academics just thought it was ridiculous, too, because we do use humor a lot. And, and as you, you know, as probably most people know, academia is not very humorous. It's pretty dry, not, not dissimilar to sort of, you know, country Christian churches. Not a lot of humor there, right? right. So... Um, you know, they're they're serious as a heart attack, and we're not. We want to avoid heart attacks at all costs, right? And um, I, I just, you know, so some people don't think we're serious enough. And I think that also by bringing in sex to, uh, you know, I mean that's just we're just in taboo territory, right? right. Sex and nature together. I mean, people's minds pop. You know, they're doing bestiality. They're doing, you know, and, and we're not. They're and inserting. Tree lands into their bodies. Whole trees we've been accused of. Having intercourse with whole trees. Real intercourse, right? And uh, Glenn Beck said on his show, he was asking this, you know, so-called philosophical question that if he puts his foot, his, uh, you know, unclosed foot into the ocean, is he committing adultery? Like he actually said that on his radio show. (laughs) Well, he was critiquing eco-sexuals. Yeah, he was. We get a lot of uh, right-wing... yeah, uh, critiques that are pretty hilarious. They really are. Uh, but they're serious. And it's easy. We're easy to critique. And we're easy to laugh of, at. Yeah. But we use, we do, we're big fans of the Flexus art movement, which was very uh, fantastic. 50s, 60s, 70s, I, I don't know, it's still going. Uh, somewhat Yoko Ono, for example, was a flexus artist. And boy, did she get critiqued! Yeah, so but we just absorb the critique and keep going. We kind of you know reflect it, we mirror it, we laugh with them. 
right? Yeah, we're conceptual artists, yeah. and, and we like humor, and humor can be uh, smart too. But if there is genuine critique, like you know, with Kim Talbert, we also listen and try to learn from it. Yeah, and you can't undo your mistakes. I mean, you know, if you, especially now when they're all on the internet, <laughs> right? Good and I still believe in what you know. It seems this country is a very unpopular idea, but I still believe people can change. You know, and people can be. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm not really a religious person, but I believe in redemption. I mean, I think people, people who, you know, I think people can change, but it's hard work, and we're mm-hmm. we're ready to do that hard work of change too. And we like to be challenged mm-hmm. and critiqued, actually, and the debate shows that we're onto something important. If we, if there was no reaction to what we were doing, then we wouldn't feel that we were doing our job as artists. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, and in terms of change, that is, I think, central to ecosexuality in some way, or where I see an intersection between sex and ecology, which is that it's this constant evolutionary process is ecology and sex as well, right? That the more we get out of this static conception of ourselves as as sexual beings and can be present, going back to the mindfulness that you were talking about earlier, right? Mindfulness is being present to the fact that change is constant. And through that principle, one hopes that humans, I mean, let's hope because as a, that's the only thing that's going to, we as a planet need to lean into right now is some pretty radical change. Um, yeah. Uh, one question. Are you saying yes to ecosexuality? <laughs> oh, I was a born ecosexual. <laughs> I mean, to me, it, to me, it's very um, basic. It's where I feel most centrally and alive. If I'm in green spaces and forest and rivers, that is an erotic experience for me. And I put on events for women in those in those settings that are focused on erotic expansion. So I'm I'm on board. That's been my a real intersection of my work. And I think it's um it's at the core, our relationship to eroticism and eroticism in the larger sense. Our, I talk about this on the podcast a lot, our, our connection to a larger cosmos and an ecosystem and a web of being that we're embedded within. Uh, I think it's a very um, foundational intersection there, ecology and sex. So, um, Do you know the Wise Woman Center upstate New York? I do. I was yeah, just... I taught there 10 summers with Barbara Carellis and Linda Montano, who was our guest uh, mm-hmm. artist, and my friend Juala. And uh, we would teach sacred sex, um, usually four day workshops every summer. And we'd send everyone out to go make love with something in nature a rock or a waterfall or a tree or moss. Uh, and then come back and we tell stories. And uh, I was amazing. Some women said that was the best sex I've ever had. It was not uncommon that they had profound sexual experiences, which were available their entire lives, and they never just thought about it. So I think saying yes and just knowing of the option is there is huge. So thank you for doing that work, Leanne, and uh, giving women that expanded idea of sexuality. And I hope that's trans-inclusive women. Of course, yes. <laughs> but also just getting people outside is so important. Now, after we've spent this pandemic year, you know, glued to our computers, mm. and which is so unhealthy. I mean, yeah. that's a pandemic in itself. And I, I just feel like, I feel like it's so important, like with our work with the Earth Lab is to get kids away from their computers and get them outside. Because if people don't have joyous, pleasant, you know, beautiful experiences with the non-human outdoors, then they're not going to care about those spaces. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to work to resist the, the pipelines, you know, try to make for better ecological conditions for the earth to thrive in. I just, I think it's so important to get people outside. And um, that's, that's part of our goal also. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reading Andreas Weber's book, uh, Matter and Desire, who he's, he's going to be on the show. And I, I found the definition of eroticism. I don't have it in front of me, so I'll paraphrase, but that I just loved, which is er- eroticism is a, a, a very an experience of full embodiment and aliveness, and that takes it beyond the sexual and and kind of describes exactly the experience of being in 
communion with nature in some way. And so. I, yeah. Our friend Kevin O'Connor said something about the consent thing. Uh, what was it he described? He uses it in dance, like contact dance. Prob- you know what I'm talking about. He had a term that you liked. Oh, co-sensing. Ah. About co-sensing, sensing together, mm-hmm. right? Thanks for reminding me about that, honey. Yeah, Kevin O'Connor is this just beautiful Canadian dancer who mm-hmm. – does a lot of work with the non-human world. We d- we were um, we were at UC Davis together in the performance studies program, and he is just incredible, an incredible thinker. But he talked about co-sensing and moving together with the earth, and really, you know, I mean, you have to be in connection mm-hmm. to do that, and. It's not a woo-woo thing. He worked with Inuit student with Inuit um, peoples doing seal doing the seal hunt and learning the whole process from killing the seal to you know skinning the seal and which is not woo-woo at all. I mean, it's a very controversial for white people, uh, mm-hmm. you know, process. And so he really works deeply with co-sensing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, an answer to the consent question. Mm-hmm. We don't really know what if a tree wants to be hugged, for example, but we can try to co-sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm thinking about your film, so Water Makes Us Wet. There's something that I uh, appreciate within it, which is this acknowledgement of your ecosense throughout. And first, it speaks to your tone and this ability to laugh at yourselves and to the inherent contradictions in doing this work. Um, but, you know, so this is a film about water. You go to a water treatment plant and you go to Annie's childhood home where you have the pools, but you're still describing in text, you know, the the issue, like how much water the pools use throughout L.A. And you're eating a hamburger and then realizing how much water goes into making a pound of meat. And so I'm curious as ecosexuals how you navigate these tensions in your own life since all of us, like we were saying earlier, who if we care about climate change, but you're a human on earth, it's like a constant negotiation, what sacrifices you're willing to make, how nuanced, like the more you think about any detail, uh, I, was, I was interviewing Corinne uh, Leperfito, who uh, spent a year doing zero waste, and just how that was an aspirational challenge and not even a possible one, because there's always some way in which you're having impact or you're connected to a system. So anyway, I'm curious just about that negotiation, especially as artists and going back to the Earth Lab, like the materials that artists use so much can, though talking about ecology themselves be harmful where where are some negotiations that you've uh come up against and and how did the film maybe inspire some changes or what changes do you hope that they inspire well we became vegetarians really Uh, yeah during the pandemic we just can't stomach it anymore eating industrial produced meat or i mean if we you know if we were in a you know, out in the wilderness and we had to eat meat. I'm sure we would, but we've become vegetarian. And that's that's one thing. And and the pandemic, I mean, I'm not flying right now. Uh, maybe I will to Germany, you know, but we were flying a lot before the pandemic, like a lot, a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's interesting as artists, when you have to go do these gigs or you think you have to, like, how do you do, how do you negotiate that? And I think that we have slowed down tremendously. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen when the book really does come out because I think the book is, you know, I'm hoping the book's successful, you know, so we're always in this kind of tension between success and how do you, you know, how are you low key, right? And making a low impact upon the earth. That's a great question. And I don't have, we are eco-centers and we will be eco-centers you know, until the day we die. And then even afterwards, because everything we've put in our bodies are going to go back to the earth. There was this wonderful uh, um, herbalist in Tennessee that said to me one time, her name was Carol Judy. She's passed away since, but she said, you have to be really careful about what you eat because it's all going to go back into the earth when you die. Right. And mm-hmm. I've never forgotten that. So I, I have, we have a consciousness and we try to live in this very, uh, death culture <laughs> world that we're in in capitalist neoliberal America right now, uh, you know, and we try not to be over consumers 
my students don't use that many materials in their classes other than things they can find in the forest because I encourage them to do walking as art. I encourage them to do things like simple food preparation as art. My students, I'm really discouraging them from using sort of industrial materials at this point. I'm not that kind of an art teacher. Um, Performance art is very low impact (laughs) in terms of materials and materiality, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that's that's how I teach at school. But uh, these are questions we all need to wake up and ask ourselves every day. Mm-hmm. We uh, we change the kind of art that we make. We don't like shipping things. So we used to make big frame things. We're not doing that anymore. We're, or we're allowing museums in Europe or wherever, Russia, to print, print their own and just make it there so there's no shipping material but digital digital life has you know i mean you see it most absurdly in the production of cryptocurrency which just takes tons and tons and tons of electricity and if you watched our first film which is called goodbye golly mountain an ecosexual love story you know you see what the ravages of mountaintop removal coal mining are and that coal's used to produce energy that like runs the servers that we're using right now mm-hmm but we are eco-sinners. We've got the lights on right now, so we'll look pretty. <laughs> and uh, we, you know, we use a dishwasher, and we are about to drive cross-country, so there's no way around it. We're just. But I actually think something like vegetarianism or veganism, you know, is huge because, you know, you're just not participating in this industry that not only, you know, is, is clearing the Amazon to feed these cattle, but it's also the cattle that produce so much methane and pollution with the runoff from the farms going into the rivers. And, you know, just the simple step of being really aware of what you eat is really powerful. Shout out to Impossible Burger <laughs> and uh, Beyond Burgers and Beyond Sausage and those plant-based products well, they're probably that are problematic just, too. Uh, they might be, but I'll tell you, they're so good. And of course, it's they've just developed enough great alternatives to me that it makes it really easy now. You know, yeah. the Rockstar Peaches? Who, There's a way. Yeah. Do you know Peaches, the rock star? Uh-huh. So she, she said to us, because we talk about, you know, the problems of being a human today and what we're doing with the earth. And she said a really beautiful thing. She said, with all of the problems and all of the things that are going wrong, there are also solutions, people trying to invent alternatives, people trying to change the systems that are harming us. And so you know, for all the bad things going in one direction, there are good things that are going in other directions. And I think we have to hold on to that. I mean, sometimes in our relationship with Annie, I can be the really negative, critical one. And I have to remember what Peaches said, you know, but like good things and bad things, they're both happening. And all of this is going in and all the different directions. Over, though. There's there's the binary is over, though. There's over. no good and bad. <laughs> Just, we all need everything fits together. Uh, yeah. Reaction, cause and effect. There's cause and effect. But I think the answer to your question, what I thought of is that when we're in relationship with the earth as ecosexuals, as lovers uh, married to the earth, it can just be a romantic. You don't have to be ecosexual. You can be just a romantic partner, ecosensual partner. Um, When you're in that relationship, then you just start to care more. And just like when you're in a marriage, you learn how to be a better partner. And prioritize those needs over your own. Yeah, so it's really been a learning process. We were big eco-centers when we got together. Mm -hmm. Uh, And gradually, as we learn more from other people, inspired by other artists and and vegan friends and all that's going on it's been we've changed easily we're hedonists so we don't like to deny ourselves pleasure but uh it just happens we get more pleasure right now not eating animals so uh pleasure uh is taking interesting new forms and and it's got to happen naturally it's got to be yet a big yes rather than a denial thing yes we can 
drive instead of fly. It's actually less, or we can buy, uh, you know, well, uh, you know, we could go on and on with our ecosystems, but we, we got out of the theater for one. Uh, we were doing a lot of performance, theater performances, but it takes so much resources. And we were pretending like we were outdoors in the theater. It's like, well, let's just go outside. So we created an ecosex walking tour theater piece that mm-hmm. happened in the park. And it's scripted. And I mean, it is, it's a full on theater piece, but we don't use the kinds of energy resources. Mm-hmm. than one has to do in a black box theater. And we really collaborate with Earth. So we don't have to buy stuff, get fake flowers, or build a bed with lumber. I mean, that really is one of the beauties of thinking about the Earth as a lover instead of as the mother, because it shifts the mother taking care of us to mm-hmm. the responsibility for care being on us taking care of our lover. Mm-hmm. And mothers can be lovers anyhow. Most of them are lovers. Mm-hmm. So many are. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a rich conversation and uh, we'll link to all of your work. And I think the aesthetic and the flamboyancy and the fun with which you're talking about these themes is really important because it can be a really grim space and it, it is a, a bleak situation um, that is rather dire feeling. And so when we at least choose to try and meet it with your degree of sparkle, and sprinkle, um, it, it's uh, inspiring. And thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, thanks for having us on. This was fun. If this episode turned you on, show us some love. Drop a five in the ratings and leave us a review. Maybe send it to a friend. It's not just about our egos, but it really helps us build our audience and therefore get these conversations out there. Special thank you to Esteban Alban for editing and mixing this episode and to Leslie Gonzalez for all of her incredible work this season. Thank you also to Liliana Estes for her ongoing support with the show and to Ben Euphrat for his support and his original music. Stay sexy, folks.